Section twenty of An Inland Voyage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. An Inland Voyage by Robert Louis Stevenson Changed Times There is a sense in which those mists never rose from off our journey, and from that time forth they lie very densely in my notebook. As long as the Waz was a small rural river, it took us near by people's doors, and we could hold a conversation with natives in the riparian fields. But now that it had grown so wide, the life along shore passed us by at a distance. It was the same difference as between a great public highway and a country by-path that wanders in and out of cottage gardens. We now lay in towns, where nobody troubled us with questions. We had floated into civilized life, where people pass without salutation in sparsely inhabited places we make all we can of each encounter but when it comes to a city we keep to ourselves and never speak unless we have trodden on a man's toes in these waters we were no longer strange birds and nobody supposed we had travelled farther than from the last town i remember when we came into lila adam for instance how we met dozens of pleasure-boats outing it for the afternoon, and there was nothing to distinguish the true voyager from the amateur, except, perhaps, the filthy condition of my sail. The company in one boat actually thought they recognized me for a neighbor. Was there ever anything more wounding? All the romance had come down to that. Now, on the upper Waz, where nothing sailed as a general thing but fish, a pair of canoeists could not be thus vulgarly explained away. We were strange and picturesque intruders, and out of people's wonder sprang a sort of light and passing intimacy all along our route. There is nothing but tit-for-tat in this world, though sometimes it be a little difficult to trace, for the scores are older than we ourselves, and there has never yet been a settling day since things were. You get entertainment pretty much in proportion as you give, as long as we were a sort of odd wanderers, to be stared at and followed like a quack doctor or a caravan. We had no want of amusement in return. But as soon as we sank into commonplace ourselves, all whom we met were similarly disenchanted. And here is one reason of a dozen why the world is dull to dull persons. In our earlier adventures there was generally something to do, and that quickened us. Even the showers of rain had a revivifying effect, and shook up the brain from torpor. But now, when the river no longer ran in a proper sense, only glided seaward with an even, outright, but imperceptible speed, and when the sky smiled upon us day after day without variety, we began to slip into that golden doze of the mind, which follows upon much exercise in the open air. I have stupefied myself in this way more than once, 
Indeed, I dearly loved the feeling, but I never had it to the same degree as when paddling down the Oise. It was the apotheosis of stupidity. We ceased reading entirely. Sometimes when I found a new paper, I took a particular pleasure in reading a single number of the current novel, but I never could bear more than three installments, and even the second was a disappointment. As soon as the tale became in any way perspicuous, it lost all merit in my eyes. Only a single scene, or, as is the way with these phaetons, half a scene, without antecedent or consequence, like a piece of a dream, had the knack of fixing my interest. The less I saw of the novel, the better I liked it. A pregnant reflection. But for the most part, as I said, we neither of us read anything in the world, and employed the very little while we were awake, between bed and dinner, and poring upon maps. I have always been fond of maps, and can voyage in an atlas with the greatest enjoyment. The names of places are singularly inviting. The contour of coasts and rivers is enthralling to the eye. And to hit, in a map, upon some place you have heard of before, makes history a new possession. But we thumbed our charts, on these evenings, with the blankest unconcern. We cared not a fraction for this place or that. We stared at the sheet as children listened to their rattle, and read the names of towns or villages to forget them again at once. We had no romance in the matter. There was nobody so fancy-free. If you had taken the maps away while we were studying them most intently, it is a fair bet whether we might not have continued to study the table with the same delight. About one thing we were mightily taken up, and that was eating. I think I made a god of my belly. I remember dwelling in imagination upon this or that dish, till my mouth watered, and long before we got in for the night, my appetite was a claimant, instant annoyance. Sometimes we paddled alongside for a while, and wetted each other with gastronomical fancies as we went. Cake and sherry, a homely rejection, but not within reach upon the Oise, trotted through my head for many a mile. And once, as we were approaching Varbury, the cigarette brought my heart into my mouth by the suggestion of oyster patties and soutum. I suppose none of us recognized the great part that is played in life by eating and drinking. The appetite is so imperious that we can stomach the least interesting vivants and pass off a dinner hour thankfully enough on bread and water. Just as there are men who must read something if it were only Bradshaw's guide. But there is a romance about the matter, after all. Probably the table has more devotees than love, and I am sure that food is much more generally entertaining than scenery. Do you give in, as Walt Whitman would say, that you are any less the immortal for that? The true materialism is to be ashamed of what we are. To detect the flavor of an olive is no less a piece of human perfection and to find beauty in the colors of the sunset. Canoeing was easy work, to dip the paddle at the proper inclination, now right, now left, to keep the head downstream, to empty the little pool that gathered in the lap of the apron, to screw up the eyes against the glittering sparkles of sun upon the water, or now and again to pass below the whistling tow-rope of the Dio Grashacon, 
or the four sons of Amon. There was not much art in that. Certain silly muscles managed it between sleep and waking, and meanwhile the brain had a whole holiday and went to sleep. We took in, at a glance, the larger features of the scene, and beheld, with half an eye, bloused fishers and dabbling washerwomen on the bank. Now and again we might be half wakened by some church spire, by a leaping fish, or by a trail of river grass that clung about the paddle, and had to be plucked off and thrown away. But these luminous intervals were only partially luminous. A little more of us was called into action, but never the whole. The central bureau of nerves, what in some moods we call ourselves, enjoyed its holiday without disturbance, like a government office. The great wheels of intelligence turned idly in the head, like flywheels, grinding no grist. I have gone on for half an hour at a time, counting my strokes and forgetting the hundreds. I flatter myself the beasts that perish cannot underbid that, as a low form of consciousness. And what a pleasure it was! What a hearty, tolerant temper did it bring about! There is nothing captious about a man who has attained to this. The one possible apotheosis in life, the apotheosis of stupidity, and he begins to feel dignified and longevous like a tree. There was one odd piece of practical metaphysics which accompanied what I may call the depth, if I must not call it the intensity, of my abstraction. What philosophers call me, and not me, ego and non-ego, preoccupied me whether I would or no. There was less me and more not me than I was accustomed to expect. I looked on upon somebody else, who managed the paddling. I was aware of somebody else's feet against the stretcher. My own body seemed to have no more intimate relation to me than the canoe, or the river, or the river banks. Nor this alone, something inside my mind, a part of my brain, a province of my proper being, had thrown off allegiance, and set up for itself, or perhaps for the somebody else who did the paddling. I had dwindled into quite a little thing in a corner of myself. I was isolated in my own skull. Thoughts presented themselves unbidden. They were not my thoughts. They were plainly someone else's, and I considered them like a part of the landscape. I take it, in short, that I was about as near nirvana as would be convenient in practical life. And if this be so, I make the Buddhist my sincere compliments. Tis an agreeable state, not very consistent with mental brilliancy, not exactly profitable in a money point of view, but very calm, golden, and incurious, and one that sets a man superior to alarms. It may be best figured by supposing yourself to get dead drunk, and yet keep sober to enjoy it. I have a notion that open-air laborers must spend a large portion of their days in this ecstatic stupor, which explains their high composure and endurance. A pity to go to the expense of laudanum, when here is a better paradise for nothing. This frame of mind was the great exploit of our voyage, take it all in all. It was the farthest piece of travel accomplished. Indeed, it lies so far from beaten paths of language, that I despair of getting the reader into sympathy with the smiling, complacent idiocy of my condition. When ideas came and went like motes in a sunbeam, 
when trees and church spires along the bank surged up from time to time into my notice like solid objects through a rolling cloudland when the rhythmical swish of boat and paddle in the water became a cradle song to lull my thoughts asleep when a piece of mud on the deck was sometimes an intolerable eyesore and sometimes quite a companion for me and the object of pleased consideration and all the time with the river running and the shores changing upon either hand i kept counting my strokes and forgetting the hundreds the happiest animal in france end of section twenty recording by greg giordano newport ritchie florida